0: Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, August 30th, 2020. The share ID numbers for Friday, August 28th are the following For the 7 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 15,236. That's 15236 and for the 10 a.m. eastern big book study 15237 that's 15237 this morning a vision for you presents no reservations nor lurking notions of all 12 steps which is the most important do you think it's step 1 Why do anything about a problem when you believe no problem exists? Everything begins here at step one. All of us have come to this program as a result of the suffering, hopelessness, and despair we experienced in our disease of compulsive overeating. Beaten into a state of reasonableness, we come to the realization that we are doomed. To begin the journey toward abstinence and recovery, we must first acknowledge our problem. Step one, we admitted we were powerless over food, that our lives had become unmanageable. Our admission of powerlessness and unmanageability marks the beginning of recovery. The first step is about admitting defeat in our battle with food and compulsive overeating. But step one is not merely an intellectual admission of powerlessness. It is an emotional acceptance of our powerlessness at the gut level. If we are planning to stop compulsive overeating, there must be no reservation of any kind nor any lurking notion that someday we will be immune to our trigger foods. The AA 12 and 12 refers to this acceptance of powerlessness and unmanageability as an experience of utter defeat, bankruptcy, hopelessness, and hitting bottom. As the big book says, we learned that we had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were compulsive overeaters, alcoholics, compulsive overeaters for us. This is the first step in recovery. Joining us today to share her experience with Step 1 is Terry C., a recovered compulsive overeater from New Jersey. Terry is committed to our 12 step way of life, to the study and to the application of our daily spiritual work in her daily life. And it's with great pleasure and appreciation that I welcome Terry C. to the line this morning. Welcome,
1: Terry. Thank you, Leah. Can I be heard? Yes. Okay, great, because I did lose you for a little bit, so I was unsure. Okay, good morning, everyone. Um, I'm Terry C. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from New Jersey. And I'd like to, uh, if you would, let me start with a prayer. God, please help me to be still as I access and invite you in this morning. Please help me to be present as an equal and devoted member of the fellowship. And please help me to trust trust me with the outcome that I may be as understanding and as effective as you would have me be. Amen. Okay. Uh let me turn my volume up just to make sure. Okay. Yes, yeah. um Terry C, recovered compulsive as a reader, and um I would love to talk to you about my experience, strength, and hope in a chapter more about alcoholism. And in, in prayer, God kind of told me to use this chapter as an outline to tell some of my story. And it really does start at a place that's um, very befitting on what I want to share this morning. And I heard most of Leah's, Leah's introduction, and, um, and I, I can't believe uh, how much I'm still learning about this chapter. So on page 30... Or about compulsive overeating. Most of us have been unwilling to admit we were real compulsive overeaters. No person likes to think she is bodily and mentally different from her fellows. Therefore, it's not surprising that our overeating careers have been characterized by countless vain attempts to prove that we could eat like other people. That is kind of my disposition or my position when I arrived in Overeaters Anonymous. It was, um, it was just mind-boggling to me to have to admit defeat, to have to admit that I had this illness. Um, to actually come in here after telling a therapist for just a few sessions if I could just lose weight, life would be perfect. And he finally said to me, there's a place for people with eating disorders and food addiction. It's called Overeaters Anonymous. And I was thoroughly insulted. I was definitely the person who, um, you know, um, I refuse to believe, as it says on page 31, I refuse to believe that I was in that class. That was not the class I wanted to be in. and. When I got to Overeaters Anonymous, the the before story is pretty much garden variety. I lost control with food. I lost control with food at an early age, probably 13. And I can see that, you know, food was exciting at first when I was a a child. And I can see that, um, I guess I heard an AA speaker say recently um, I started drinking when I was 13, but I probably could have used one in kindergarten. And I so related to that because I lost control of food around the age of 13 or 14. but I can remember some of the scenes in my life where I wish I could have had a good binge. You know, traumatic scenes when you're a child that aren't so traumatic but they, they're so confusing and they're so they're so filled with misunderstandings that, Um, and fear and loneliness, that uh, it's a great time to access God, but what do you know at age six? What do you know at age nine? You know, when when your family system is falling apart, you don't know to access God. So I could have used a binge, you know. I could have used God first, but I could have used a binge. And so, you know, this paragraph says, you know, it's not surprising that our overeating careers have been characterized by countless vain attempts to prove we could eat like other people. Um, so from age 13 on, I battled that weight. Re- I battled that, that demon, you know, um, that baffling feature of, of, compu- of my compulsive foods, the utter inability to leave them alone, no matter how great I wanted to you know, crying in that dressing room that I was a size 22 and going back out into the mall to my favorite binge places, forgetting that I was demoralized five minutes ago in the dressing room. Um, I love on page 31 where it says, here are some of the methods we have tried. You know, uh, here's, here's all of the methods, some of the methods I have tried, and this is, this is the jaywalking experience for me, you know. Jaywalking experience because I would I would do these things but but still the behavior was the same I was, I was still jaywalking no matter how you look at it um, you know um, eating low calorie foods only limiting my number of meals never eating alone trying to be with people so I wouldn't overeat never eating breakfast in the morning thinking skipping a meal would do it. Eating only at home so that I could eat my binge foods and eat the way I wanted to eat. Never having my binge foods in the house and then I would just go steal them from someone else's home or go out and have them. Um, Never eating or trying to have, you know, the portions I really wanted to have during business hours. Um, Eating only at parties, my favorite foods, or trying to say, I'm not going to have that because I'm going to have that, you know, on Sunday. Um, switching. I love switching um, because how many things I switched from. Switching from regular to low-cal, switching from regular to no sugar, switching from regular to gluten-free, gluten switching from, you know, regular uh, to uh, a diet. Like just all the switching I did in my life. Um, drinking only natural, eating only natural foods. Eating only natural foods. I'm only going to eat whole foods. How much carob chips did I eat in my lifetime? or All these different insane foods that still gave me the effect, but I, but, I, but I switched to them. So I could go on and on, but, you know, um, I really want to focus this morning on coming into the rooms and looking at my disease because everything that preceded it was the insanity that I believe many of you can relate to. I believe that the insanity of the disease is the same pretty much when we walk in here and that it has us badly beaten. The disease has us badly beaten. And what I couldn't see was that I, I wasn't coming in here because of the disease or the food beating me down. I was coming in here because of the spiritual malady. And I continue to learn that and I... And I really see that I'm beginning to really grasp that for the first time, and I will tell you that I've been in Overleaders Anonymous since
2: 1991,
1: and I put down my alcoholic foods in 1993 and by the grace of God and this book and a fellowship, really learning about the spirituality and the true spiritual solution, these last Five years; these last five years. So, um, and I and I love sharing this morning because I I hope no one will have to be in as long as I have to to really find the solution, to really understand the solution. I believe my journey had to go the way it went, but I know for certain that you know this book wasn't hiding; I was hiding from the book. So um, these steps weren't hiding; I was hiding from them. So. No one has to hide from them that long. So the rest of this um, paragraph, uh, the idea that somehow, someday, she will control and enjoy her eating is the great obsession of every abnormal eater. The persistence of this illusion is astonishing and many pursue it into the gates of insanity or death. Boy, did I want to control and enjoy it. You know, I just thought... For sure, I could lick this. I remember the binges where I would literally be on the verge of tears because I didn't want to do it, and then telling myself, "This isn't going to be forever. This isn't going to be forever. It's going to change. Um, it, it's, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, just like the book says, I'm gonna muster what it takes to lick this thing. It's just not going to be forever. And of course, when you're in your 20s, it's kind of a little easy to say that. When you're in your 30s, maybe, you know. And I was in my 30s when I came in. You know, I was in my 30s. But I I remember the determination that I know, I know I gave in today, but I'm I'm not going to give in in the future. It's going to change for me. It's going to change. Because I was convinced I had the will to do it because, you know, I heard about the book Not God when I came in here, and I knew that that's exactly what I had been doing with playing God. We had to um, back on page thirty. We learned that we had to fully concede our innermost self that we were compulsive overeaters. This is the first step in recovery: the delusion that I am like other people, whether they're in or out of the rooms, has to be smashed. So I look at this paragraph and I think about the fact that the first step of, in recovery is I had to concede to my innermost self that I was a compulsive reader. Leah said when, in the introduction something that I grabbed onto. It was, it was so well put, better than, than anything I could have phrased together. She talked about step one is not an intellectual acceptance. I think that's what it was for me when I came in. I think I conceded to my innermost self that food was a problem for me. I don't know that I really understood what compulsive overeating, what a real compulsive overeater was. I, I'm not sure that I did. I knew that the behavior was something that I did, but I don't know that I understood the spirituality of a compulsive overeater and what that was. I have to apologize. My neighbor has decided to mow a piece of lawn near ours this morning, so I don't know if that's bothersome but please let me know if it is. so um yeah the delusion that I'm like other people all those things I talked about all those things I talked about doing the switching the eating differently to think that I was going to be normal if I just do these things I'll be normal you know I had a I had a best friend in high school that I realized later it was anorexic. Didn't see that we were both obsessed with food. It just manifested itself differently in each of us. And, you know, she convinced me that if I ate these low-fat foods and these, you know, zero-calorie drinks, that I would be okay. And I remember binging and binging and binging on them. And I look back at it now and see what, what a comical sight that was for an anorexic and a compulsive overeater. It was just, you know... Um, I wanted to be like her. I wanted to be like her. (laughs) And the funny part is, I was really like her. I was so obsessed with food. I just wasn't restricting at that point. So um, when I came in here, when I came into Overeaters Anonymous, um, the unmanageability was so pervasive that I came in to lose the weight. But the unmanageability was so pervasive. Um, those who know me know my story Now I talk about my breakfast bottom. And I'm going to mention it today only because it really is the height of unmanageability. It's the best illustration of the unmanageability in my life. And it was a Sunday morning, and um, my husband and I had had what I'll term a knockout, dragout fight, but I'll probably lay claim to the reason for it because my husband is not a very rageful or angry, you know, filled with rage person, so it was probably me. And whatever happened, I knew it was a frightful scene, and my husband was holding my three-month-old son, and I can remember both of their faces looking frightful and terrorized by this beast in the room who was me. And I stared at them as they were silent watching me, I can't imagine what was going through my husband's head as I continued to eat my starchy, starchy, compulsively, compulsive food-filled breakfast. And I knew as I watched them that something was terribly wrong because I was eating and they were immobilized. I wanted the food and they wanted to know how they even got to that moment. And it was... That moment that always sticks in my mind is my bottom, because no great, no matter how great the necessity of the wish, I was eating that food and my life was falling apart around me. And um, it says on page forty-three. I'm just going to go there real quick and Fred's story. It says that um, I think it says an, an alcoholic. Um, has to be pretty badly mangled. I think that's what it says. Yeah, most compulsive overeaters have to be pretty badly mangled, ba- mangled before they really commence to solve their problems. I felt like I was pretty badly mangled at that point, even though I couldn't kind of articulate it. I was pretty badly mangled. And it's not long after that the therapist suggested that I come to Overeaters Anonymous. So in 1993. I came into Overeaters Anonymous, um, and I got the disease concept. I kind of understood what they were saying there was something wrong with me. And the meetings that I went to at the time picked up the big book with the stories, but I never remember reading the front. I know that I must have at some point, but I never remember reading the front. And so my, foo- my focus on the food and the disease concept, and I had that kind of intellectual admission, that intellectual acceptance that I'm, I'm, I have a problem with food. I remember buying a t-shirt early in recovery that said it's not my fault because I was so liberated that there was an explanation for my insane life, um, that there was an explanation for my being overweight, that there was an explanation for the fact that my sister could eat one, one portion and say she was full, and and I couldn't even imagine how that, that worked for her. Like, I couldn't even imagine. Or, or someone could, you know, eat two out of the pack, and my husband would eat, you know, two cookies, put the bag away, and forget they were there. And I, I wouldn't rest until they were gone. Like, like I could see. I had a different kind of reaction. I had no idea about the physical allergy at that point. I really didn't. And, and I, I don't know if I just refused to hear it or I didn't hear it, but I, I had no idea. And so I remember my therapist saying I should go away to treatment, and my son was only two and I couldn't do it. So I went to an outpatient workshop of a woman who had written a book on our disease and it was through that workshop that I was encouraged to put my refined carbohydrates, which I was clearly addicted to, down, put my alcoholic foods down. And that was in March of 93. And I, I got it. It was kind of like, oh, I, I, if I just put these down, I'll be okay. I got to try it because I, I knew I was insane. I went to that workshop not because I wanted to lose weight but because I was depressed. And I wanted that to change for me. And so that's when zero sugar and zero flour became my way of life. And on page 33, it says, if we are planning to stop overeating, there must be no reservation of any kind nor any lurking notion that someday I will be immune to my compulsive foods. And I want to tell you I had no reservation and no lurking notion that I could eat flour and sugar and for me those are my alcoholic foods. I realize that's not true for everyone, but for me they were clearly my alcoholic foods. I have come to understand there are other foods that fall outside of those categories that give me ease and comfort and I you know, and I have given those up and I'm sure there'll be some I discover in the future that give me ease and comfort, but Right now, at that point in my life, I just knew I I had to give them up. But the operative word there is I had to give them up. I did it. I was going to put the flour and the sugar down. And so my from 1993 till 2008, when I discovered the big book, there was a focus on the food that I believe carried me through. Somehow God carried me through. I've often wondered how was I able to put down my alcoholic foods when I never had a spiritual experience? Well, maybe I didn't have the spiritual experience. I believed in God. I knew there were steps and I understood them. Did I understand how to do them? No. It says on page 51, And I've been looking at this paragraph over and over again recently. I'm I'm actually going to read the whole paragraph, if you would indulge me, that begins on page 50. Here are thousands of men and women, worldly indeed. They flatly declare that since they have come to believe in a power greater than themselves, To take a certain attitude toward that power and to do certain simple things, there has been a revolutionary change in their way of living and thinking. In the face of collapse and despair, in the face of total failure of their human resources, they found that a new power, peace, happiness, and sense of direction flowed into them. This happened soon after they wholeheartedly met a few simple requirements. Once confused and baffled by the seeming futility of existence, they show the underlying reasons why they were making heavy going of life. Leaving aside the eating question, they tell why living was so unsatisfactory. I I know it seems elementary, but I feel like that was was really the, the recovery that I was stuck in at that point. So many meetings that I was going to, people were identifying why they were there, how they got there, you know, talking about the spiritual malady, but not from a spiritual malady standpoint, just how unsatisfactory life had been. Or they were talking about how unsatisfactory life was because they couldn't put down the food. They struggled with abstinence constantly. And... None of what precedes that on page 51, none of what precedes that is anything that I would find in meetings like that or that I can find in meetings like that. And I'm not here to bash meetings. I'm here only to say that my journey didn't include understanding the spiritual solution at the get-go. I wish it did. And for some reason, I didn't hear the spiritual solution. I hope no one has to wait that long to hear the spiritual solution, but I felt like I spent a lot of times in the, a lot of time in meetings, um, just talking about things that were unsatisfactory, either before compulsive overeating and recovery or after compulsive overeating and recovery. And um, I just find that. Lost my train of thought there, hold on one second. Oh, the rest of this says they show how the change came over them when many of hundreds of people are able to say that the consciousness of the presence of God, not just the belief in, but the consciousness of the presence of God is today the most important fact of their lives. They present a powerful reason why I should have faith. And that's exactly what I've since learned. What I've since learned is that I can know there's God, I can believe in God, but the presence of God, the true spiritual experience that I have by working these steps is what I create today. It's what works for me today. And I'd like to tell you a little bit more about how I got there. Let me just check my slides. Okay. So, just going to go to one more page, page 38. These are all pages. Trust me, these are not for me. These are the pages that stood out to me this week as I was thinking about this talk. And next week, a whole set of different pages could stick out to me that relate to the same thing because so much of this book just complements the same idea, and that's seeking God and finding a spiritual solution. So on page 38, when it's talking about the jaywalker, past the middle of the page, it says, However intelligent we may have been in other respects, or compulsive overeating has been involved, we have been strangely insane. Strong language, but isn't it true? Oh, it's so true for me. It is so true for me. So I mentioned that I've had. In step one, my step one experience when I came in was a strong focus on food. So abstinence was the most important thing in my life without exception. And I don't like the phrase, but it fits me exactly. I look back now and see how I worship the God of abstinence. And that agnosticism took me to some very insane places and some insane behavior. And I've recently really looked at that insane behavior. And some of it requires immense. Um, and and the one that stands out the most to me is my va- my husband and I like to vacation, and we have planned various vacations. He's he very much likes the Caribbean. He very much likes the beach. And our whole vacation planning, in my recovery, has been based around where I could get. My, where I could get my abstinent foods or how I would able to absolutely be able to get my abstinent foods Much many of our vacation and our weekend plans weekend getaway plans are based around how I can have an abstinent breakfast which is not always easy for me to get out to get when I go out. why? because I'm very rigid about what I eat for my breakfast So my husband's life and his plans and his recreational Um, opportunities have been limited because of my rigidity. Um, At times when we shop for trips uh, or have gone to, say, the beach for a week, um, shopping, and the compulsive shopping I do to get my alcoholic food, sometimes you might think I was going to the moon where there might not be a grocery store. These are the insane things. This is all so clear to me at the beginning of my abstinence what happened and some of what some of which mildly continues and I need to make amends for um, I remember being with a colleague and we were going to a business meeting and I remembered that I had packed my lunch and I packed everything but my starch and there's a lot to the story but all I say is that I made this person drive to a lot of different places until I could get my starch, which I really could have let go of, but that's how the mental obsession, I guess if anything I want to impress upon it anyone today is my mental obsession with food continued while I was abstinent, and I can see it a little more clearly now. I can see it a little more clearly now. Um, You know, I kind of consider my discovery of the steps and the real way to do them kind of like having a nice dress in the closet. You know, recovery is a a beautiful dress in the closet. It's such a nice day. Like, over years, anonymous, gave me that dress. It was such a beautiful dress to have in the closet. And until I actually wore the dress, I didn't have the experience. I know other people articulate examples so much better than that, but that's the one thing I think of. Until I'm actually in the dress, I'm really not having an experience. I might own the dress, but until I'm in it, I'm not having an experience. And that's what it it kind of relates. That's kind of how I parallel it. So I could never figure out how I could be in the rooms for almost 15 years, not know the book, not have a spiritual experience, and not go back into my alcoholic foods. Like I'm going to tell you, my ego runs real big when I think about that because I know that I believed in God, but accessing God wasn't really something I really understood at that point. We could go through, we could go down a whole nother road of my kind of what meant where the mental obsession brought me you know a whole nother road when I think about it my ego with my career my ego with the attention of men my ego went there was there's a whole nother road where that mental obsession got at six maybe I wasn't in my foods but I can tell you that the mental obsession I'm not sure that it was really lifted. Um, so, I learned about a group that was studying the Big Book in 2008, and I went to those meetings. And it was a little different, a little different than the way that our open meetings, like Vision for You, was focused on studying the Big Book. Um, but what I did gain was perspective of the directions in the beginning of the book. Knowledge, of course, and the fact that these steps were really about the principles of living the principles of living you know that's what they were about and so it was really enlightening and encouraging and it was it was something new to participate in and I studied the steps in this group and um, I am a little distracted. My neighbor is now mowing my lawn. <laughs> okay. <laughs> God, that's the craziest sense of humor. Okay. So, um, um okay, back to the big
3: book. So, I,
1: I, the discovery of the steps was so new to me and so exciting and it was so liberating to, to finally get out of what was years and years and years of getting into groups that were doing the steps, trying to do the step four, trying to do four through nine. And then all of a sudden I realized, oh, no wonder why we kept doing the steps. We didn't really know how to do them. We really didn't understand the directions. Here's the directions. And all I can tell you is that to the best of my ability in that group, I followed the directions, and I did my best based on the guides that I had, and about five years ago, I realized something was seriously wrong. Something was seriously wrong. I was working with steps the way that I had learned. I had been taught that you were supposed to, you know, after you completed the steps, say focus on steps 10, 11, and 12, and... So I was listening on occasion to the vision meeting and I kept hearing a woman share that was from my area, who I knew pretty well, and I thought, I should call her. I should call her and kind of just talk it out with her, like something just doesn't feel right. And then one day I started to eat salad out of my husband's bowl and I thought, oh my God. Oh, my God. Now, somebody else might say, oh, my God, it wasn't a Snickers bar. Oh, it was insane behavior, right? Just insane behavior. So I knew I had to call her. And, of course, you know, whenever I don't want to do something, I know it's God nudging me to do it. So I called her, and I said, you know, something's wrong. I'm living in 10, 11, and 12. I'm angry with everyone. I'm annoyed with everyone. Now I'm eating salad out of my husband's bowl. And she said, what does your step 10 look like? And I thought, as I started to tell her what my step 10 looked like, I realized that sounded like a bunch of bullshit, quite frankly. I didn't know what I was talking about. I realized I was confused about step 10 and 11, because she asked me the next question was what my 11 looked like. And she said, let me take you through. Let me take you through. Why don't you review the steps again and you know see, what, see what's going on? So that was that was over four years ago and the one thing that, that that I'm so grateful for, I learned that this program wasn't about me. I finally learned my purpose. I finally learned about the importance of God's work. You know, every day I read eighty four to eighty eight because I need the instruction. I need the instructions, and I want to do what it says on page 25. You know, when I work with people, I go to that title page when there's a solution, and there's a solution, and I read that title page, which on page 25, that's the sentence, clear and simple, there is a solution. And for me, I read through that page to get to the bottom of the page, which says, We can go on to the bitter end, blotting out the consciousness of our intolerable situation, or we can accept spiritual help, accept spiritual help. And I can't tell you how much, when I look at that page, I'm still so inspired and so gratified with the fact that God never left me. I just didn't know he was there. I didn't access him. There's so much of what I did in my life that I did on my own before I got to go, before I got to OA, and after I got to OA, because when I look at all those beginning years in OA, and worshiping the God of abstinence, I was so in self-will. I mean, self-will, as it says on page 87, which is what I read every day, and when I say this prayer now, it has a whole different meaning for me, particularly in light of what I've I'm learning about step one. We conclude the period of meditation with a prayer that we be shown all through the day what our next step is to be, that we be given whatever we need to take care of such problems. We ask especially for freedom from self will and are careful to make no requests for ourselves only. Let me tell you about the difference of learning about my self-will and kind of how that came about. So late last year, I have been living in 10, 11, and 12 and trusting God, cleaning house, helping others to the best of my ability. I was finding that I was repeating some 10 steps. It just seems like fear about my children, my husband and I recently retired, fear about our future and our economic security. There were certain 10 steps that were just repeating themselves. And I just thought something was off, and I knew I wanted to work the steps. So I'm just grateful that God kind of through a conversation with others, with other fellows, and through prayer and meditation, led me to start the steps again. And with the grace of God and the fellowship, I found someone to work with. Where I'm going deeper into the book and learning more about step one, and I'm literally finishing step one, and I'm on step two right now. But I could really see when I looked at step one and I looked at my total history with food, both in and out of the rooms. I can see how I I can have a spiritual experience but there are some areas where I can remain agnostic and I don't want to continue to do that. You know, during the pandemic, I started to see again how comfortable I was that I didn't have to leave the house. And I said to someone when the pandemic started, you know, I'm an isolator, so I'm a little concerned, thank God for the zoom meetings. But I was comfortable, you know, having what I needed in my house, my non-alcoholic foods, everything I needed for abstinence. And sometimes that was on the borderline of comfortable and indulgent in my thinking. And sometimes during the pandemic when I shopped, I would get a little obsessive with having so so much abstinence food in the house. And I had to really look at that, I had to really look at, you know, invite God in and ask for help with that because that's the mental obsession that precedes the first compulsive bite. I have no intention of going out there today and eating my compulsive food, but that's the mental obsession that eventually leads to insanity and then the compulsive bite. So, um, I'll give you an example also. A friend of ours brought a pie to dinner a couple weeks ago, a couple months ago maybe and it's not my food but it's my husband's food and no one ate it and she left it here and I kept saying to my husband the pie he he had a piece of it or he had a couple pieces of it it during the course of three days probably which never in my history with food but he said we're going to do something with that pie let's just throw it away (laughs) and you know normal people say that But anyway, uh, my chief goal in life has been to rescue food. So, you know, it's been God who helps me sometimes say, it's just food, throw it away.
2: Terry, star one to unmute.
0: Terry N, Terry C, Star One, to unmute, please. We do not hear you, Terry.
3: Terry, perhaps dial back in.
0: Thank you, everyone, for your patience as our speaker will dial back in now.
2: Terry's star one to unmute.
0: Okay, well, we will give a moment or two here to allow for Terry's return to the line. Obviously having some technical difficulties, star one to unmute Terry. as we all know, I'm sure at times that technology can be challenging and calls for some perseverance. So let's see if Terry can get back on. I'm the back. Line. Okay, terrific. Let's continue <laughs> with the pie story.
1: Okay, thank you. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, um I'm not sure how much you heard of it, but um my uh, I guess the pie my interest in saving the pie was a lurking notion it was a reservation and i can see that today i can see that you know agnosticism creeps in sometimes and it becomes you know a lurking notion that comes out in the in the you know in the uh expression of saving a pie you know a, a, A fellow recently called me and talked about how she lost her abstinence um, when waking up on a Tuesday morning, having company and deciding to have a barbecue that night. And, um, you know, I can see in my own thinking and in other thinking, the lurking notion is, you know, the mental obsession, it it can be there. And and when God isn't present and I'm not working on seeking God and inviting God into my day and into my life, the lurking notion can be there. It may not be something that I overeat on that day, but it's a lurking notion that can manifest itself if I don't invite God in. So um, I guess interesting that it kind of cut me off there because at this point, you know, I look at that saying, no, you know, no reservation nor any lurking notion. For me right now, I read that and I say, I have no reservation or any lurking notion that I can still do any of this by myself. You know, self-will carried me a really long time. God's will has to carry me today, has to carry me today. And so um, as I work these steps again and realize that being aligned with God on everything, you know, the um, the La Twelve and Twelve has a line that says God will help me with everything, even food choices in a mouth. and amounts. I need to take that literally. I need to remember, you know, um, the the guide taking me through my guide taking me through the steps right now said something to me the other day that I really just needed to hear. And she said, you know, an alcoholic doesn't get to pray three times a day, but he's going to you know ingest alcohol. We get to pray at least three times a day, usually, you know, and ask God, and invite God in. And so the interesting thing is that, you know, whenever I tell my story, I never talk about really abstinence or food or my, you know, the way I handle food. And today I felt compelled to talk totally about that because it has taught me something so profound that it's taught me that intellectual, as Leah, Leah said in the beginning, intellectual acceptance isn't enough. Belief in God isn't enough. The consciousness of the presence of God is what I have to work at, whether it's about my food, whether it's about my family, whether it's about, you know, my future. That's what's the most important thing. And I think I'm going to end there. And I hope I hope that, um, you know, I hope I've done, I've hoped, that I've been as understanding and as effective as I can be this morning as I move to say these words from God. And that's all. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you so much, Terry, for sharing your experience, strength and hope, and personal insights regarding step one with all of us this morning. Greatly appreciate all that you offered to to our meeting this morning. The share ID for This presentation, 15,245, that's 15245. Terry's contact information will be given at the conclusion of this recording, so you'll need to stay tuned for that. We will transition to a question and answer segment now. You can pose a question to Terry by pressing star 1 to unmute. I need your name, including the first letter of your last name. Katie G. from Boston. Gotcha. John K. Anyone else?
4: Did you hear me, Jody E.?
0: Oh, Jody E., great.
4: Sharon C. from New Jersey. Sharon C.,
0: Nikki W., Massachusetts. Claire E. from the U.K.? Nikki W., who from the U.K.? Claire E. Claire. Very good. Okay. Anita J. Anita J. will get you in that group. Sure. Okay, let's start with Katie G., please. Good morning, Leah. Good morning, Terry, and thank you both for your service today. Terry, beautiful talk so much. Uh, resonated just wanted to know um really loved what you're saying about the connection with god and god guiding everything so for people who are coming out of relapse
4: and until we do step 12 we haven't had a for me i didn't have a spiritual connection with god until i hit step step 12 so how do i differentiate the truth from the false in terms of, like, what if
0: God's telling me that I can be abstinent eating hot fudge Sundays? Like, um, I was just hoping you could um, speak a little bit to that um, in terms of abstinence and um, when we're coming out of the food. Thanks.
1: Thanks, Katie. Good morning. Um, you know, people call me a lot and ask, like, ask about specifically, like, how do I stay absent if I haven't completed the steps? How do I have a spiritual connection? How do I, you know, know what to do? Or uh, one of the people I work with just asked me the other day, like, you know, it's it's hard being absent. You know, how am I going to do this and, and, and wait to get to the, to the ninth step? Um, I hope this answers your question that I'm a firm believer that the doctor's opinion, the doctor's opinion starts to tell us. That we have to have a power greater than ourselves to recreate our lives. And the doctor's opinion tells us we have to rely on something other than human power. So I don't think we need to wait to the 11th step for prayer and meditation. I think we need to pray and meditate and we need to really try to have a conscious contact with God early, um, you know, to the best of our ability. This is a spiritual solution. We're working on a spiritual solution. So I just try to encourage people that, Okay, you know, it's hard to trust ourselves when we come in here. You know, we've been making wrong decisions for a really long time. So it's hard to trust ourselves. However, we didn't walk in here on our own volition. I believe God just had a reservation for each and every one of us. He was just waiting for us to take him up on it. So I just try to remind people about the fact that it's a miracle that we're talking or even becoming familiar with the steps when you've been as deep in the food as I was. So let's just trust the power, whatever that is, even if someone hasn't figured out they have a God or what that is, but let's just trust the power that brought us in here and try to just really, you know, hang with the fellowship, do what we need to do. I can't, I still can't make, I've been in this program this long, I still sometimes can't make decisions about what I'm putting down without having supervision, you know, as far as food decisions. So I think just the idea that, this is a spiritual solution, let's not wait to talk about that, and let's just really encourage people to really anchor in with whatever power or their God early on with their decisions about food or early on with any decisions and just ask for that inspiration and to just trust that God through the fellowship or through another way will give us, will tell us what we need or, or give us that inspiration for what we need to do. I hope that's helpful.
0: Thanks, KDG, for the question.
3: Karen Kay, your turn. Good morning. I'm Karen Kay from Syracuse, New York, uh, recovered in my credit zone transfer. Um, I woke up a little bit late, but I loved what you had to say about abstinence being my God. I just so appreciate that. I did not plan on getting on this uh, meeting this morning, but I think I know uh, someone who did, and that was God. Um, and that's what's been happening with me the past couple of days, because there was some other ingredients like way way down in the packages I had, so I got rid of them. And I I was a raving lunatic, um, and I don't have to be. I mean I know that abstinence is important, but God is more important. And and I really appreciate your share on that. And I was praying for you uh, when you got when whatever happened to the uh, phone call, because I wanted to hear more. And um, it's a wonderful thing. And I I wrote down what you said about trust the God that brought me into the rooms.
0: Karen, good to hear. I just wanted to say what I
3: learned, and I want to say thank you. With that, I'll pass. Thank you.
0: Thanks so much. Jody E., your turn with a question, please.
4: Thank you, Leah M., for your service. And thank you, Terry, for your for your experience, strength and hope. I could really uh, relate and appreciate to the need for this connection with a higher power. So my question is, do you sometimes forget to ask God to help you stay present in the moment or make a decision? And how do you remind yourself how do you stay in this awareness that you need to trust and rely on God always? Thank you
1: um Leah, I had trouble understanding Jody. Can you hear me?
0: I hear you, yes, Jody, you wanna rephrase your
3: question? Sure, yes, um. How do you
4: keep this awareness of your need for constant contact with your higher power? How do you keep from forgetting and (laughs) beginning to rely on yourself?
1: Thank you. Thank you for that question. Can you hear me okay, Jody? Yes. Okay. Thanks for that question. It's a great question. Um, So... Uh, you know it, i i've just explained how you know inviting god into my food planning inviting him into my shopping into my prepping into my um into my uh you know when i sit down and weigh and measure and about to have my meal which i can tell you like just hearing myself say that out loud sounds like really seriously like you're you're getting that elementary but um, that's exactly what I do. And, and it's funny that you say, how do I remind myself? Because I guess you know, like I do, that I'm a, a slow learner and a quick forgetter. So, um, and I'm, you know, there's many people who I know, who I admire, who pray, you know, who've always prayed before they eat. That's something I've never gotten the habit of doing. And it's something I'm trying to do right now. So, Jody, literally, I need cue cards to, to do the things I need to do. You know, I really need cue cards sometimes. And so I create them for myself. I have a prayer card on my scale, and I have a couple of scales, so I have prayer cards on both of them. And, um, and I just try to, you know, I have, I have little reminders on my phone, and I just try to do it differently now because I know how long I've done it the other way. I just really, you know, try to invite God in, like, like praying and meditating. I've just been doing so much more praying and meditating. This morning before I got on this call, I needed to take a good ten minutes and get quiet with God and really remember that I wanted to stay in the sun stay in the sunlight of the spirit and so um I think I actually think it must be God helping me as i you know as i I make an effort um but um we could talk more about that offline but but that's a good question because I don't wanna don't wanna seem like I've been struck um you know prayerful, you know, because I haven't been struck prayerful. I'm working at it. And, um, yeah, I hope that's helpful.
4: Thank Thank you, you,
1: Jody E., for your question. Sharon C., your
4: turn. Yes, uh, hi. Thank you so much, Terry, for that beautiful uh, experience, discourse. Um, I'm Sharon C., and uh, my question is, Well, actually, it was already answered. It was similar. It was remembering for every moment of my life, every day, I need God. I need him to. It's his will, not mine. It's so hard for me to remember that um, in everything, in all things. I don't know if you have. uh, I think you kind of answered it with Jody's question. I'm not sure.
1: Well, you know, Sharon, and and I can just expand on it. Thank you for for that, for kind of... um, adding to that in that, uh, you know, I have, I spend right now because I'm doing step work, I'm kind of disciplined and spending a certain amount of time every day in the book and, you know, studying and and, uh, just trying to go deeper, Um, but that discipline of the book right now and the prayer and meditation has just kind of helped me be in more conscious contact with God during the day, you know, and, and inviting him in, inviting him in. A, I heard a, I heard a person say in a meeting recently, and I had to steal it because it was just too great. She said, you know, God's a gentleman. He doesn't really come until he's invited. He really doesn't come in until he's invited. So just that, that practice of wanting him, you know. Bill's Bill sentence in his story, I had wanted and needed God. Like, I think about that when the speaker says, you know, I started drinking when I was 13, but I probably could have used one in kindergarten. You know, at age 6, 7, I wanted and needed God. I just didn't know it. So right now, the, just the, the the focus on that, just, I think, you know, when we want God, he shows up. You know, He he shows up. So I hope that's helpful.
4: Oh, thank you very much. Yes, yes. Same here.
0: Thank you, Sharon, for your question, Nikki W. Your turn for question. Uh, hi, uh, this is Nikki W. From Massachusetts. Uh, thank you so much, Terry. I I cannot believe I got so much out of everything you shared, and I just find it um, so inspiring. Uh, I'm. I've flirted with OA for like the past 30 years, and I just recently came in again about a month ago. And um, one of the questions I have that you started to bring up in your answer a couple of questions ago was, you know, your relationship to the scale. You said you put cue cards on the scale. Uh, could you talk about that? Because I, before I came seriously into the program a month ago, I weighed myself every single morning for decades. And um, I realized that I was making OA about um, how much I weighed instead of about my behavior and uh, my control issues and how, and so my sponsor said, well, you should do it once a month. That's when I do it. And I have to say that I feel like I'm flipping all the time because I keep sneaking back to the scale and saying, I'm not losing weight, and I'm being you know, so careful with my food, which I
3: realize is all control issues. But how do you deal with this scale?
1: Well, Nikki, I think perhaps I need to clarify something, and then I'll, I'll kind of give you my, my opinion about the scale. Um, when I mentioned the scale, I meant the scale that I weigh my food on. Because I, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but but let me kind of clarify what I've learned. First of all, um, I'm addicted to volume, so I need to have a scale. I need to weigh my food on a scale, and the scale before was my worst friend and my best friend, and it's become now just a tool. It's a tool, you know, Mm the the tool that helps me live within the confines of 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 my food plan. So I have you know, prayer cards on my food scales to remind me that I'm not in charge of my food. I can turn it over to God, live within the confines, and I want to tell you, I have neutrality around the food with those two ideas. Now, as far as the the weight scale, the body scale, I learned a long time ago that the body scale is showing us whether our food plan is working properly. And as a consequence, I don't really need to weigh myself anymore. Because as long as I'm sticking to my food plan and God is guiding me, there's there's nothing I need to be concerned about. Unless I'm not feeling well, unless my health is, is indicating otherwise, the, the body scale for me is really, um, used to be a measure of worth and and it's now a measure of health. And so I really don't bother with it as long as, you know, in fact, I don't really get weight unless I go to the doctor and um, and that's good enough, so... Um, I would be happy to talk to you about my experience with the body scale at some point, um, if you want to call me offline. But but just wanted to clarify, I was talking about the, the scale that I use to weigh and measure my food.
0: Thank you, Nikki W. for the question.
1: Claire
0: E., your turn.
3: Hi there, thanks so much for a brilliant share and I really really relate to the start
1: raving abstinence in OA and uh, making abstinence my God, primary purpose is abstinence and for me what's really changed since I've been in vision is that abstinence isn't the end game anymore, it's the spiritual awakening but I have struggled over the years with my agnosticism and I know you mentioned your agnosticism Um, but you also mentioned that you do believe in a God and I would really love to hear um, more about how You address and overcome your agnosticism because I think it really blocks me from time to time thank you thanks Claire that's that's a pretty big a pretty big question but I'll do my best to be brief about it um you know every day I wake up an untreated compulsive overeater every day I wake up an untreated one and um, that's why you know accessing God and accepting spiritual help has to be the most important thing to me. However, um, the, the devilments can show up, you know, they can show up just because I'm recovered, just because, you know, I've worked the steps the way they're outlined in the book doesn't mean, you know, that someday I'm not going to say, as my good friend in the program says, Oh, not this God, I got this, not this. And so, um, you know, I listened to a meeting recently, and it was called "Present Day Agnosticism." And I've listened to a couple of speakers that have helped me realize that, um, you know, we need to keep accessing God because we're we're fallible, we're human, we're we're gonna, you know, I lived so long in self-will. God understands that occasionally, you know, I kind of I want to take my will back. I don't want to give it to Him. So, um, so I hope I'm answering the question by telling you that agnosticism to me, especially as I'm in the middle of studying step two right now, agnosticism to me, is doesn't, isn't something, uh, it's never going to happen to me again. I'm not going to graduate from, you know, from agnosticism. There are times that I unfortunately take my will back. Um, there's, you know, not hope, you know, God, thank you, God, it hasn't been about the food. Um, but, you know, like my daughter, she's just making some, you know, decisions in her adulthood that she's supposed to be making because that's when we learn these lessons and sometimes I can forget that, you know, it's an outside issue and I need to leave it to God and I bring it inside and, and can, um, you know, forget that, that I need to turn my will and my life over and that God will handle it. So um, I guess... If anything, again, I go back to kind of some of the previous questions and the idea that the discipline of accessing God on a regular basis is the is the very thing that's going to perhaps keep me in check when it comes to the, the agnosticism that can occur in a given day or a week. So I hope that's helpful, and I. I'd be delighted to talk to you again, Claire. Thank
4: you. Yeah,
1: that's, Hope that's helpful. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much, Claire. E. Anita
0: J, your turn.
4: Thank you so much, Leia, for your service. Carrie, I got so much out from How are you um, um how to how to uh, share? honest share. I wanted to ask you I'm I'm Anita J from Massachusetts. Um about that rage, I just heard that rage, you know, the Thai rage. It's just done with the baby in his arms. And that's what I wanted
3: to know. When, when did that leave? At, at what point? And um, I guess that's it. You can expand
2: on that. Thank you.
1: Wow, Anita, thank you for that question. It um, really fills me with a lot of gratitude. Uh, especially because um, I think of horrible scenes when I was a teenager with that rage. I really, for me, and I'm not a psychiatrist or anything, but I, I think that you know, rage is, is is anger internalized, and it just comes out sideways, comes out different ways. Um, when I first got in recovery, and I and I started working my program. And I don't even know if I was abstinent at that point because I was in a couple of years before I put down my alcoholic foods. I can remember uh, the the good good intention sponsor I had at the time, you know, encouraging me when I would when I would call in in, in total disgust about my rage, um, that she would encourage me. Well, well, you know. How you know? Don't compare yourself to anybody but yourself. How often are you are you rageful at this point? And it seemed to be lessening, and then it seemed to get less. And and I think, to be honest with you, I just think it was quelled. I really do think it was just quelled at that point. There was still a rageful person inside of me. She just wasn't coming out as often. Um, today, um, I don't have what you would consider a rage. But if I get angry and I leave God out of it, I can get that that volcanic eruption inside of me because, you know, pain is inevitable, but suffering is an option, and I can get that that total panic and volcanic reaction that I'm so upset and so angry that, you know, something's going to burst but the minute I go to God, it dissipates, it's gone, if I remember to go to God. And then if I don't go to God, I'm either talking to somebody like a junkyard dog or something else immature is happening. So I guess what I want to say to you is The rage really has been lifted as I know it, as it was evil for me, as it really corrupted my life and those around me when it was really like throwing pots across the room and breaking tables, which I hate to admit, but I'm going to give you that description because that's the truth. Um, Today it's, you know, that volatility I feel, and then I get reminded that I go to God and I just get still. I get still. And with God it can be still. And rage is not, you know, the opposite of still. So hope that's helpful.
0: Thank you, Anita. Who else has a question this morning for Terry? Star one Diane on, B. Diane B Barbara P. Barbara P. Mary Ann V. Mary Ann V. Anyone else? This will be the final invitation for questions. Pete B. And Pete B. Excellent. Diane B., go ahead with your question.
4: Thank you. Good morning. This is Diane B. from New Rochelle, New York, and thank you, everybody, for your service today. I really got a lot of what you were sharing today, Terry, and I really thank you for that. My question is about the 10th step, because you mentioned that. Um, I forgot already what you said, but you mentioned about the 10th step um, and how that has really helped you with, with your
1: connection with your higher power. If you could Could you please elaborate on that a little bit? Sure, I, I think I need to talk about ten and eleven though, because I probably, um, I think more eleven for me. A tenth a 10 step helps me get right with with the people in my life, you know, the people, places, and things in my life. A tenth step really is, you know, looking at where I made wrong decisions, wrong judgments, you know, had wrong behavior. Um, it's really the eleventh step that, through prayer and meditation, I improve my conscious contact with God because. If I really can take the time to just get quiet, because prayer and meditation are equally important to me right now. Prayer and talking to God, you know, this morning, talking to God, asking him for his will, getting quiet, you know, talking to him about my fears before I got on the line. That prayer is really important. the meditation of just getting quiet and trying to just kind of set aside what I think I know, open up my channel, listen, just get quiet. Sometimes meditation for me is just looking at the stillness in the room. Um, that's really, that's really improved for me. And as a consequence, that discipline kind of, you know, has my thinking drift more towards God in, in a given day than it normally would. So um, if there was something specific I said about the 10 step, I know I said that, you know, to, to get to my current step work, I was repeating a lot of tense steps, you know, looking at fears that were coming up again and again, um, you know, looking at resentments that were coming up in my family again and again, um, that sort of thing. But um, does that answer your question, Diane?
4: Um, Yes, thank you very much.
0: Thank you, Diane B. Barbara P., star one to unmute.
4: Hey, good morning. Barbara P in the Atlanta area. Terry, thank you so much. Really beautiful, beautiful talk. And uh didn't think it related at all in the beginning and completely related. So my question is this. I I feel very connected to my higher power and it's it's amazing. So I can I can see the progress, but I never feel confident in that relationship in a sense. Like I think it's the doing enough. So I wonder if you've experienced that, do you feel, you know, yeah, I got this in terms of God. And, um, and if you do, how, you know, how do you, or if you don't or have experienced that, how do you deal with the? Oh, I should be doing more. I guess that's really the net of it. Do you feel like you should be doing more? And if so, how do you handle that?
1: thanks okay thanks barbara i i kind i relate what you're saying you know that that self judgment you know that that measurement of self um but the key word is self there and it was never helpful for me you know it's usually comparing myself or you know it, it's my ego, i think you know um that crops up when i have when i start to feel like you know less than in the program less than in my family less than in my marriage you know not doing enough not doing enough what i've what i've come to understand and rely on is if i am in communion with god i don't need to have to worry about measurements i really don't need to worry about measurements and and you know i've learned a lot about being whole and and being whole is being a member of the fellowship you know, working my steps, doing my step work, and, you know, being, you know, living the principles of this program, living the principles and, and, and wanting to help others both in and out of the room. So I um, find if I just kind of rely on God to tell me if there's something more I need to be doing, then I'm okay. But if I'm relying on me to tell me what I need to be doing, I'm going to usually get into trouble or my ego is going to go into a place it shouldn't be in. So I hope that's helpful.
0: Thank you, Barbara P. Mary Ann V., your turn.
2: Mary Ann V., star one to unmute.
3: I'm sorry, I'll start over. Can you hear me now? Yes, okay, great. Okay, so I have that same issue with rigidity around food. Um, it was so it's been so bad, and I'm still struggling with it, that I brought non- kosher food into a kosher restaurant in Israel and caused an incident. embarrassing as that is. So how do you deal with that? How have you gotten better at not being so rigid around your food that you you know cause issues for other people?
1: You know what, Marianne, That's a really good question. Something I probably meant to talk about, and I I really didn't. Um, Thanks for bringing up the word rigidity, because it's yeah. If I mentioned it, it fits me exactly in my past behavior. Um, I look at the scale as a tool. I look at my my food plan as a guideline. Now, my my food plan doesn't include any of my alcoholic foods, nor should it. And there are certain foods that Are not necessarily my alcoholic foods but I find that you know eating normal portions of them sometimes they stay in my head and I heard a speaker say once I never put anything in my mouth that stays in my head thought that was pretty good pretty good guideline but um I realized that when I am strict and I'll give you an example of strict I put a piece of protein on the scale and my food plan for most of my meals calls for three ounces of protein. I put a piece of protein on the scale, and the scale says three point one. If I'm in alliance with God, and I'm praying to God, and I, and and God knows me, right? He knows how my day is going. I choose to call my higher power God, and He, He knows how my day is going. And I'm saying, God, am I being flexible, or am I being indulgent? And I get the answer. You know, I get the answer. It so says 3.2. Now, if it says 3.5, I'm being, you know, I'm really not going with that. <laughs> but um, for me to sit there and shave off the .1, that's, do I want strict, or do I want God's strength? I've learned that from a, from a recovered fellow in the room that I am very, very grateful for. And I want God's strength. You know, if it says 2.8, I'm okay with that, and God's probably okay with that. Unless I've had 2.5 and 2.8, and then, you know, I can err on the restricting side, too. Ooh, good. I'm not having as much. That's good. Less calories. I don't want to go there. So I guess I just want to briefly say that um, if I bring God into that whole process, I'm going to relinquish the control of it. And God's not going to come down and measure it for me, and he's not going to like cut it up for me, and he's not going to eat it for me. But the consciousness of the presence of God is going to be in that process, and it's going to be okay. It's not going to be okay when four ounces goes on the scale. It's, it's just going to be okay. I'm not, I'm not going to get anal. I, I believe in guidelines. Please don't get me wrong. I believe in guidelines, but that's what they are and if you want to talk more about that i'd be happy to talk to you hope that's helpful
0: thank you mary ann v our final question for the morning comes from pete
5: b so thank you Leia. Uh, my name is pete b i'm a compulsive overeater recovered today by god's grace and mercy and thanks so much terry for your presentation it was outstanding i really appreciate it just I have a question, something that, that just remains, I, I asked it several times, so, I, I you know, I went to great lengths to identify the foods, the ingredients, and the behaviors that cause the phenomenon of craving, and I, and I, and I, by God's grace and mercy, I put those foods down, I keep them out of my, out of my daily consumption of food, <clears throat> And I eat my breakfast and like sometime between like 11.30 and 12 o'clock, I start getting restless, irritable, and discontented because I'm hungry and my body needs to be nourished. And then I eat these foods that are free of those substances and I get an indescribably wonderful sense of ease and comfort from that. My nutrition, my nourishment, my requirement for nutrition gets satisfied. I become more comfortable. I become like I think my God would have me be. Because I'm get experiencing that sense of ease and comfort that you talked about in your speech, am I doing something, wrong?
1: No. No, Pete, thanks for the question. Um, I, you know, ease and comfort is something that my ego wants, or uh, enjoying my food, enjoying my food is it's okay to have the ease and comfort and the enjoyment of my food. I guess when I use that in describing foods that aren't healthy for me or that I've come to believe give me an effect, um, it's kind of like when I came in the rooms and I could see the foods that scratched my itch, you know, the foods that really, you know, maybe ease and comfort wasn't the right description, but they scratched my itch. But Looking at ease and comfort from the enjoyment standpoint, I think we should be enjoying our food. I, I like food. I think we should be enjoying our food. I think that, you know, eating our, eating our prescribed meals or, you know, our prescribed foods or whatever and, and being satiated by them is the sense of healthful and wholeness that God wants us to have. So um, the answer is no. No, I don't think that we're doing anything wrong. I think, again, um, we should enjoy our food, and 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 we're entitled to enjoy our food. And isn't it beautiful how we can enjoy the foods that are um, nutritionally helpful for our body? So I hope that, hope that clarifies that.
5: It does. Thank you so much.
0: Thanks, Pete, for the question. Thanks to everybody who posed questions this morning. And, of course, thank you so much, Terry, see for your presentation this morning, sharing your personal insights and experience regarding step one and bringing that to life for all of us on the line. Thank you for, the for your generous service this morning. We're going to close from page one sixty four. You'll notice it's in a chapter entitled "Division for You." Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little.